all you beautiful body bastards and welcome back to body ballads where we look at many of the forgotten hilarious and often dirty old songs of the past along the way we'll explore all those things that make life just a bit more interesting there's trickery infidelity loving drinking fighting and while we dig into these songs we'll talk about all kinds of stuff archetypes, history, folklore, and share the way these songs connect with the present. A fair warning before we begin, this show does discuss adult themes and topics, including violence, sex, and my own foul mouth. And as always, make sure to check the show notes for links, including thebodyballads.com, where you can share your creations with me and see the show transcripts and additional links if you're curious to learn more. And with that said, let's get to today's episode. Welcome everyone to episode 19, where we're looking at all the ways to woo those wonderful and witty wenches. Whatever will we do with you? Always outwitting even the slyest of wooers. All right, all right, enough alliteration. Let's talk about the witty and wise cunning women. The ones who value knowledge over marriage. The ones that fit the Athena archetype. We see this archetype throughout story and song, but she, like all archetypes, is also present in our history and everyday lives as well. Most of us can guess the nature of the Athena archetype by having basic understanding of Greek myth, which is almost unavoidable in the West, but a quick review. Athena was the Greek goddess of wisdom, military strategy, weaving, and courage. Athena was born by giving her father the worst headache possible and then literally ripping her way out of his mind. Some real alien type shit. Actually, as I'm recording, I saw some Reddit comments where people were saying the names that ChatGPT gave them when asked about if it had to pick a name for itself. And Athena was mentioned, and I thought, "Mm, of course it did. Now, The only reason Athena was able to do this is that, and rip her way out of her father's skull, is that her father Zeus, great king of the gods, got so wrapped in his own fear and ego at the prophecy that Athena would become the new lord of heaven, that he just straight up ate Athena's pregnant mother, Metis. Now, Metis and her role in the Parthenon is important as she was the titan goddess of wisdom in things such as planning and counsel. This act essentially transmits the older goddess Metis into a newer goddess of wisdom that owed her existence to Zeus, guaranteeing her subservience to a father and to enforce Greek social norms. This, of course, may be why those in her archetype tend to be daddy's girls and often strong in more traditionally masculine mental aspects such as logic and reason. And here's where it gets interesting, though, because sometimes the Athenas of the world have to either learn late or relearn the more feminine mental aspects of trusting their intuition through some very hard trials, typically because they have ignored their screaming intuition when reason couldn't find the source of the intuitive alert. The archetype's ego is based in being logical and wise, and in today's world, the shadow of that is the fear of being seen as the stupid girl, or worse, 
that crazy bitch. Now, I'll have to work in an episode on that crazy bitch through the varying archetypes, including the mother, but when paired with the Athena, we get characters like Katarina as seen in 10 Things I Hate About You, which is an important one for me because it was a key, I was key age range when it came out. I first watched it as a young sophomore girl in rural Alabama who just managed to find all the punk greats like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. So the bits of feminist punk immediately grabbed my attention. The Athena archetype, the smart girl, was always a siren song for me. Ladies such as Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice and Portia from Merchant of Venice are blended with the wild woman of the woods such as Cat in both Taming of the Shrew and Ten Things I Hate About You. She values wisdom above everything and for that wisdom to be used for the improvement of self and society. She understands on a deep level that to make the world better, we f must first make ourselves so. She terrifies many because she can smell bullshit and will not only not tolerate it, she'll call you on it. Think of Professor McGonagall with this aspect, because in my mind, McGonagall exemplifies it. It's that ability to call out the bullshit that enables her to create change. There's also the witty and wise Portia, who isn't abused, but comes to the rescue of her husband dressed as a young male lawyer. Jane Eyre, whose quiet spirit taught me that power and strength of will wasn't always dressed in loud and fancy packages. All of them living by their own set of standards and expectations outside of what society dictates they should desire and strive for. Now, let's get back to Kat, though, because she is a perfect example of what ha tends to happen when a man sets his sight on an Athena. Since she tends to smell bullshit, traditional methods of courtship fail completely. While some might call her actions plain hard to get, the reality is she is hard to get. She's so consumed with her quest for truth and understanding that you don't even register in her perception. You are nothing in comparison to the vast complexities of the universe. Her egos become determined to capture the Athena who has so easily dismissed them. That determination begins to slowly drip, drip, drip at the stone-like strength of the opponent, and it's the easiest way to really win against an Athena figure. Pester her until she finally gives in and says, fine, fuck it, let's go. She hasn't been wooed, but subdued. The other way, the more noble, is the suitor changes to meet the expectations of the Athena. Mr. Darcy doesn't pester Elizabeth to death after she rebukes him. Instead, he takes his wounded ego into self-reflection and growth, as does Elizabeth. The whole reason the love is so strong by the end of that story is not only did Darcy change and improve his persona based on Elizabeth's rebuke, she does the same. And that kind of inward self-actualization is a long and hard process that takes much more strength of character than the simple pestering technique, which is why it's more common. 
such as in the first song today, which is an example of a recurring plot of boy tries to get girl, who rebukes him based on logic and common sense. He then slowly pleads his case over and over and over again until finally, with no clear reason, she says, yes, I love you. Let's get married. That's why I love the title of today's ballad a mad kind of wooing, which dates to around 1628, well before any kind of organized feminist movements, but only one generation after one of the most powerful female leaders and Athena's, Elizabeth I. It's written as a conversation and likely would have been sung as a duet, but since it's just me in this little show, I'll have to do both parts, and for that, you're just going to have to forgive me. So let's look at the early 17th century's views on mad wooing, shall we? A mad kind of wooing or a dialogue between Will the Simple and Nan the Subtle with their loving agreement to the tune of the new dance at the Red Bull Playhouse. Will, sweet Nancy, I do love thee, dear. Believe me if thou can and shall, I do protest and swear, while that thy name is Nan, I cannot court with eloquence as many courtiers do, but I do love entirely, wench, and must enjoy thee too. Spite of friends that contends to separate our love, if thou love me as I love thee, my mind shall ne'er remove. Nan. Peace, Goodman Clown, you are too brief in proffering love to me, and if thou use such rustic speech, we too shall never agree. Dis Think my fortunes I'll forsake to marry with a clown when I have choice enough to take of gallants in the town? The eagle's eye doth scorn the fly, she'll find a better prey. Therefore, leave off thy dotish suit away, fond fool, away. Well, why, prithee, Nan, never scorn my love, although I be but plain. Where Will doth once but set his love, he must not love in vain. For all your speak of scholar-like and talk of eagle's eyes, no, I come a wooing wench and not catching flies. Then never reply, nor yet deny, I will not be denied. I would not have the world report I twice did woo a maid. Nan. But twice and thrice and twenty times you'll woo before you win. To match with ignorance amongst maids is held a sottish sin. Therefore I'll match, if e'er I match, one equal to my spirit, and such a one or else no one, and shall my best love inherit. A man of wit best doth fit a maiden for to take, then such a man, if that I can, my husband I will make. Will. Why, Nan, I hope thou dost not take thy will to be a fool. Thou knowest my father for thy sake three years kept me at school. And if thou thus hast spirit enough to yield to be my joy, I warrant I have spirit enough to get a chopping boy. And then never deny, yield, and try, or try before you trust. Let who will seek for to enjoy for will both will and must. The second part to the same tune. Nan, <laughs> why, I have those that seek my love that are too stout to yield, and rather than they'd lose my love, they'd win me in the field. Their skill in martial exercise so much doth thine surpass that should they hear thee sue for love, they'd count thee but an ass. 
Then be mute, thy foolish suit is all but spent in vain. Tis an impossibility thou shouldst my love obtain. Well, dost hear me, Nan, whate'er he be, doth challenge love of thee, I'll make him like to Cupid blind. He shall have no eyes to see. And I think I have a little skill, my arms be strong and tough, and I will warrant they shall serve to best him well enough. If he but starts to touch thy skirts, or in the least offends, by all the hopes I have of love, I'll cut off his fingers' ends. Nan, how should I grant to fancy thee, whom others do disdain? If thou shouldst chance to marry me, how wouldst thou me maintain? Thou knowest not how to use a wife, thou art too homely bred, and soon I doubt to jealousy thou thy fancy might be led. Many fears urge my cares that I should careful be, I fear I match a crabbed piece if I should marry thee. Will, Nan, I am plain and cannot cog, nor promise wondrous fair, when all my promises shall prove like castles built in the air. My true performance shall be all, my word shall be my deed, and honest Nan, if I have thee, you shall have all you need. Clay hands be bold, say and hold, let us make quick dispatch. If thou love me as I love thee, we'll straight make up the match. Nan. Then will here is both hand and heart. I'll love thee till I die. The world may judge I match for love and not all for the eye. I had rather match a lusty youth whose strength is now at full than watch a small weak-tempered man whose strength hath had a pull. Maidens all, both great and small, that hope, ye to, hope to marry at length, do not marry for bravery, but unto strength add strength. And that's it. Now, the lines of therefore I'll match if e'er I match when equal to mine own spirit and such a one or no one is a line that immediately should bring to mind Elizabeth Bennett's words to her sister of, I am determined that only the deepest of love will induce me into matrimony. So I shall lend an old maid and teach her ten children to embroider cushions and play their instruments very ill. In our song, it isn't until Will is able to really match wits and arguments with Nan for an extended period that she consents and gives her love. It's that last line that really enforces it, though, to strength that strength. Because it's what a good relationship is. An equal pairing where two people help build each other up in a million ways based on each other's weaknesses and strength. In many ways, it's a strategy of making two things work. Speaking of wit and wisdom, let's look quickly at another similar song, but much newer, Hairs on the Mountain, which is noted as first collected in the early 20th century by Cecil Sharp. However, there are arguments that place it as early as the 18th century. In its earliest forms, it is much more like the last ballad and a back and forth between two lovers. Then, like most songs that remain popular, the ballad goes through a simplification process until we get the most popular versions, which are recorded, were recorded by Shirley Collins in the mid-20th century. Now, 
Personally, my favorite versions are those performed by Dublin-based Ratty Pete of Lancome and Tennessee's All Them Witches. But it remains one of my all-time faves, and it's because the speaker is that Athenian archetype with no time for the foolishness. And as she says in the song, young men are given to frisking and fooling, so I'll leave them alone and attend to my schooling. Anyways, so let's look at the more modern version of this type of ballad and the um, look at Colin's version from Folk Roots New Folk Roots New Roots, Jesus, which is also the version sung by Lancome, or sorry, Ratty Pete. One note is I'm not going to do the repetitions that would be there if this song were being performed, and I don't have the time to learn every song I present, so here we go. Oh, Sally, my dear, it's you I'd be kissing. She smiled and replied, you don't know what you're missing. Oh, Sally, my dear, I wish I could wed you. She smiled and replied, then you'd say I misled you. If all you young men were hares on the mountain, how many young girls would take guns and go hunting? If the young men could sing like blackbirds and thrushes, how many young girls would go beating the bushes? If all the young men were fish in the water, how many young girls would undress and dive after? <laughs> but the young men are given to friskin' and foolin'. The young men are given to friskin' and foolin', so I'll leave them alone and attend to my schoolin'. Now, all right, that's it, by the way. Sadly, for most of European history, schoolin' hadn't been a real option for women, even among the highest of the elites. With rare outliers like Thomas More famously daring to educate his stepdaughters, there weren't any kind of official group education or academic option for girls that weren't embroidery or sewing circles where you talked about um, faith and religion and piety and being a good woman in the more traditional religious aspects, right? That was until the Blue Stocking Society of Enlightenment England, which gave its name to become one of my favorite derogatory terms for nerdy girls, blue stocking. It was the go-to slur for any girl who cared for books over boys for a solid two centuries and really only fell out of popularity in the past 50 or 60 years with second wave feminism and more women attending university. Now, in recent years, it has been positively reframed by many modern feminists in a way that says, of course, I prefer knowledge. It always seems such an insane thing to me to mock the desire for education and knowledge. But as someone who has been asked by both schoolmates, co-workers, and strangers, what you're reading a book for, it was a fact of the culture around me. Though in many of those cases, it was not because I was a girl, but because I would choose to spend my time with a book. Madness. I know. So who were these original blue stockinged radicals? Well, the group was largely organized by two women, Elizabeth Montague and Elizabeth Vesey. It was formed right in the middle of not just the 18th century, but the Enlightenment as well, a period that was one of my first passions. By sixth grade, I had already inhaled as much as I could from falling in love with the American Girl doll from the period of the American Revolution, Felicity. Thinking about it now, I'm sure hearing an 11-year-old rattle on about the American and French Revolution and rights a man is probably a bit unnerving. Now, Regardless of my own personal passions, it's a critical time frame in modern history as it's the moment we shift fully into the modern. 
As a society, we shifted from focusing on theology and salvation to reason and empirical thinking. It's when ideas such as those found in Paine's rights of man begin to really circulate inside the conversations of the upper elites of British society. Then, as it is now, it was cool to be a nerd. Inside of these circles, they circulated all those philosophical ideals that every American history class emphasized as the basis of our country. The same rights that future Lady Abigail Adams would push her future president husband John Adams to make sure to allow for women as well as men as they fought for a new nation and independence. Had Abigail Adams been born a generation or two earlier and in England instead of the colonies, she would have 100% been a part of that society. After all, they stood and believed in the same core ideas on the importance of educating women. They also weren't anti-masculine, only for girls and women to be given the same opportunity for self-improvement and education so that they had the tools at hand to make wise and capable decisions for themselves. It's at the core of what one of the society's critics, the children's author Anna Letitia Barbald, argued against when she said that instead of college, the best way for a woman to acquire knowledge is from conversation with a father or brother or a friend. Funnily enough, that archetype of the female betrayer is often just the Athena archetype that has gotten itself swallowed by its own shadow and insecurity, emphasizing the daddy's girl over the wisdom and causing her to place all value on the opinion of men instead of herself. The masculine becomes the ultimate ruler when that happens. But that's an entirely different episode, and if I start on that path, we'll be here another hour, and I won't get this out for another two weeks. The idea, though, that a woman's words and value might be judged the same as that of a man was so undeniably radical at a time where it was considered foolish to even teach women to read. Speaking of learning to read and write, though, and anger, all the anger, at English spelling conventions, we have to mention blue-stocking notable member Samuel Johnson, the creator of the first real English dictionary and one that was the standard until Oxford published its first one almost 200 years later. His Dictionary of the English Language and Views on Language were some of the first that took what is known as a descriptive approach, meaning that he only aimed at keeping track of the current usages and spellings, not dictating the quote-unquote correct way. This is still something that is debated among linguistics and English, or linguists and English teachers alike. I've always taken a descriptive approach, but have to teach my students the proscriptive or quote-unquote correct ways so they don't get eaten alive by some future pedantic, uptight professor who needs to prove themselves by being super hard on things like dangling modifiers. Fuck off with all that. Sorry, getting away from myself again. I do, however, want to mention that Samuel Johnson is probably rolling over in his grave at the fact that he is most known today as the face of the classic painting, What Meme. That's the only way I can think of to describe it, anyways. You know the one I'm talking about. The white-wigged old man looks like someone just walked in and spoke complete, total jargon nonsense to him. It's the look of, what the fuck did I just read slash hear? Or perhaps he's chuckling at it all. Who knows? But if you aren't sure the one I'm talking about, just look up Samuel Johnson meme and you'll know immediately. 
Finally, I want to end by talking about the main hostess and promoter of the society, Elizabeth Montague, an independently wealthy widow who had in her younger years written to a friend that while she did see the rationality and practicality of marriage, she had no desire for men or marriage and that she didn't think it was possible to actually love a man. Despite that sentiment, she would eventually marry a man over twice her age and have one child, though the child didn't live past childhood as so many other children before modern science, i.e. the Enlightenment, i.e. the period we're talking about right now, you know, empirical thinking. So instead, she devoted her life to promoting literature and literacy. And the most notable way she did that was by providing an open space that allowed not only men and women, but those from different classes to mix minds and topics on such as philosophy, early science, literature, politics, and every other cultural manifestation in between. Or in other words, the kind of thing that would be supported by Athena and those in her archetype. When researching for this episode, I found the following quote from Elizabeth in regards to education that almost still, well, no, it still sits, hits so hard for me as an educator. Just replace the word women with workers or average man and phrase it around the state of public education. And that quote goes, in a woman's education, little but outward accomplishments is regarded. Sure, the men who are very, uh, the men are very imprudent to endeavor to make fools of those to whom they so much trust their honor and fortune. But it is in the nature of mankind to hazard their peace to secure power, and they know fools make the best slaves. And with that, I'll bid you to all have another sassy evening where you are staying curious and not being a fool because you won't be a slave. And you'll always be curious and you'll always be wise. Anywho's <laughs> that weird, oddly inspirational snippet aside, you all go forth, be awesome, and we will talk next time. Bye-bye.